Have you ever met a mercenary? A trained soldier for hire? More than meet one, I baptized one on my mission, and he was a fascinating man. I want to tell you a little bit about his story today. But before I do, can I give you a challenge? If you're anything like me, your time on YouTube is probably spent with one eye watching the video you're on, and the other eye already looking ahead to some other video you're going to watch in a second, clicking back and forth and never really immersing ourselves in any one thing. My challenge for you today is to stick with me, to see if you can watch this video from beginning to end. I'll try not to make it painful. My purpose is to invite you to spend some serious time in a serious study of the Book of Mormon. It was Ezra Taft Benson who said that a power will flow into our lives the moment we begin a serious study of the Book of Mormon. I think he was right to emphasize that word serious. If we want the power of this book, we have to expend some power of our own. So my goal in filming these lessons is to go verse by verse as much as possible, trying to pull out principles whenever we can find them, to get beyond the mere storyline of Scripture, to see the truths of God that have been embedded within its stories. In fact, if this is your first video on this channel, I'd invite you to look at some of the older ones. Now I know if you're following the Come Follow Me schedule, we've already passed that. It's time to move ahead. But again, Scripture study is so much more than a simple storyline. And I can promise you that no matter where you happen to be studying in the Book of Mormon, you'll find principles that will help you live your life. Whatever stage you may be in, whatever circumstances you may find yourself, whatever you're going through right now. So whether it's back in 1 Nephi, or further ahead in Alma or Helaman, whether it's the New Testament, the Old Testament, the Doctrine and Covenants, or Pearl of Great Price, whether we're in Mosiah like we'll be in today, there will be relevance that you will find if you have the eyes to see. So come and see. My name is Jared Halverson, and I'm a teacher of the gospel. More importantly, I'm a student of the scriptures and a disciple of Jesus Christ. I don't pretend to know everything, but I sure spend a lot of time studying. And hopefully I'm not just ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. My hope is that the time we spend together in Scripture will bless both of us, that we'll be mutually edified and rejoice together, as we're promised in the Doctrine and Covenants. Especially with the kind of material we get to study today, I hope you'll see some application for what you're going through, either in your own life or the lives of those that you love. You see, for the past three weeks, including today, we've been going through this three-generation model known as Hansen's Law, where the first generation is an immigrant, someone who left the old world but brought with them so many of the habits and traditions of what they left behind. Their children, the second generation, tend to reject what their parents had. But then their children, the third generation, often look back nostalgically, wishing to reappropriate some of the culture from their grandparents the things that their parents had abandoned. Spiritually speaking, the same process often occurs, where one generation is strong in the faith, but they raise children who, for whatever reason, choose to reject the faith of their fathers. And yet, a following generation, grandchildren looking back to the testimonies of grandparents, feeling a desire to return to the faith. More personally, that doesn't have to happen over three generations. We all go through our times of creation, fall, atonement, where the three generations are all within ourselves, where we've been strong, but then we strayed, and then we're trying to find our way back. In the book of Mosiah, you see all three generations. Zenith was the first, who left the land of Zarahemla and went back to the land of Nephi, in essence, leaving church headquarters with its prophets and scripture. Zenith's first generation departure is followed by King Noah's second generation, complete abandonment of the faith, fully rejecting the faith of his fathers and fully embracing a life of sin. Abinadi's cries for repentance notwithstanding. But then Noah's son, Limhi, represents the third generation and this anxious desire to return to the faith that was left behind. In Limhi's case, a return to the land of Zarahemla. But that return would require an escape from behind enemy lines. And that brings me back to the story of this mercenary that I taught and baptized in Puerto Rico. Like I said, he'd already fought for the United States in the U.S. Marine Corps. But after his tours of duty were over, he decided to hire himself out to other governments for wars that they were conducting. He fought in Nicaragua, for example, and had some interesting stories about his experiences there. 
His name was Raphael, this hulking beast of a man. I would not want to mess with him in combat. And yet the kindest man you could meet, a wonderful husband and father, and a sincere seeker of truth. In fact, I remember after we met him, and I gave him a copy of the Book of Mormon and explained what this book was all about. I don't know if he was just feeling like, well, he gave me something, I should give something in return. But he went and started rooting through a cabinet underneath his TV. And he pulled out a book, loosely bound, more like a handbook of sorts, and he handed it to me. I looked at it, and it was instructions on how to make improvised explosive devices with household materials. The kind of stuff you'd find underneath the kitchen sink. I just kind of looked wide-eyed and handed it back and said, I am so touched that you would offer this to me. But don't worry, you don't have to return anything for the book. We give these out as often as we can. I just felt like I was in way over my head if I kept that book. You see, Raphael's job in the Marine Corps had been as an explosives expert. He tried to teach us how to make organic timers for detonation devices that had to do with jars and rice and tin foil and wires. I'm kind of glad I wasn't a very good student of his. But Raphael seemed to be the kind of guy that always knew how to get himself out of a scrape. Raphael told us about a time he was in Nicaragua, behind enemy lines, and was trying to return back to friendly territory. A river marked the boundary between the two, but he knew the river would be watched. And so one night, under cover of darkness, he got fairly close to the river, but then dug a hole and buried himself in it and waited for two days. He never left the hole. He wanted to make sure that it seemed like nothing was happening along that boundary line. He ate whatever was in his pockets, whatever insects he could claw out of the earth. And after two days of hiding there, he quietly, again under cover of darkness, crossed that river, got into the jungle on the other side, dug another hole and buried himself there for another two days of waiting before he was finally able to get enemy territory as far behind him as possible to be able to feel safe. I've never forgot the story I heard as a wide-eyed 19-year-old. The thought of escaping enemy territory, making your way across enemy lines. Little did I know at the time, but that would be the story of so many people that I've met then and since. People trapped, spiritually speaking, in enemy territory. Whether they find themselves caught in the confines of willful ignorance, personal sinfulness, trying to make their way from addiction to recovery and sobriety, inactivity in the church to a reactivation into full activity. This is the story of every prodigal son or daughter, or prodigal parent, since there's plenty of those as well. If you've ever wandered and wondered if you can return, then that's your story. How do I escape from enemy territory and find my way back to the faith I once held? Mosiah 18 to 24 has so many answers. In fact, it's split between two different groups, and comparing the two leads to some fascinating insights. We've already seen a split between two groups in the book of Mosiah, a group that stayed and a group that strayed. You have the three generations in the land of Zarahemla, Mosiah, Benjamin, Mosiah, and then you have these three generations following Hansen's law in the land of Nephi with Zenith, Noah, and Limhi. At the end of Abinadi's ministry, you see another group pop up, and that's Alma's group after his conversion through the words of Abinadi. And so now you have an Alma's group and Limhi's group, and both of these groups are trying to find their way back to Zarahemla. Similar goals with a similar destination, but their travels, their experiences along the way are very different. So keep an eye out for that as we study these chapters. They teach some incredible lessons about what happens when we choose to return early versus choosing to come back late choosing to be humble or being compelled to be humble, to borrow President Benson's language. But let's begin by rewinding just a little into chapter 17 to see Alma and his conversion. Abinadi has been teaching his incredible discourse. If you haven't watched those videos from Mosiah 11 through 617, I would encourage you to do so. What Abinadi teaches is life-changing. It was for Alma. It should be for us. In Alma's case, chapter 17, verse 2 he says, there was one among them whose name was Alma, he also being a descendant of Nephi, and he was a young man, young enough perhaps not to be set in his ways, but also not so young that he didn't have the courage to stand up for his convictions. 
He believed in the words which Abinadi had spoken. Why? Because he knew concerning the iniquity which Abinadi had testified against them. He recognized his own guilt, and that awakened him to have a listening ear for the solution that Abinadi was offering him. Like we talked about then, not a squishing down of standards, not an, an abandonment of beliefs, but rather a change of behavior, a will to repent, to accept that condescending Christ and the help he offers to lift us back to heaven. With that fire of faith beginning to flicker, he spoke up on Abinadi's behalf. He began to plead with the king that he would not be angry with Abinadi, but suffer that he might depart in peace. Well, that didn't work. Not only did King Noah not let Abinadi depart in peace, but he didn't want Alma to depart in peace either. So, angrier than ever, that one of his own would betray him. Noah casts Alma out, and then, thinking better of it, sends his servants after him that they might slay him. Yet Alma, showing some foot speed, perhaps only matched by Joseph running from Potiphar's wife, he flees, he hides himself, and most importantly, he writes all the words which Abinadi had spoken. There's a record now. Back in King Noah's court, the rest of chapter 17 describes the martyrdom of Abinadi. Meanwhile, however, Alma, off in hiding, gives us a chance to understand his experience. Chapter 18, verse 1. It came to pass that Alma, who had fled from the servants of King Noah, repented of his sins and iniquities. We're going to see what he says about that repentance later on. But notice from the beginning, it wasn't simply a departure from that wicked life. Having already left it, having fled from it, there is still a process of repentance that's required. And part of that seems to be restitution. We'll see this personified by Alma's own son, along with the sons of Mosiah. But having been a priest of Noah and led so many people astray, he now tries to reverse the process and goes about privately among the people to teach them the words that he'd learned from Abinadi. What was his takeaway from that? Remember what it said in 17, he knew that Abinadi's cries for repentance were true. But what he focused on, what lingered longest in his ears were these things from chapter 18, verse 2. He taught them concerning that which was to come, not just the consequences of their sins, which Abinadi spent some serious time on, but rather concerning the resurrection of the dead and the redemption of the people, which was to be brought to pass through the power and sufferings and death of Christ and his resurrection and ascension into heaven. That is the gospel. As Joseph Smith said, everything beyond that is just an appendage. This was Alma's great takeaway. And it took him away from the life of sin that he had been smothered by. Resurrection, redemption, power, sufferings, death. This was the gift that Jesus was offering him. And Abinadi simply delivered the package. In verse 3, many begin to hear him. He teaches them privately so that the king won't know. But many believe his words. Abinadi was so much more successful in what seemed like a failed mission than what he realized. Those who believe his words congregate in a place called Mormon. It was in the borders of the land. It was infested by wild beasts. This is their wilderness. It's amazing how often in scripture a wilderness kind of experience comes up. Somewhere in that fall to atonement stage. This is the children of Israel wandering through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. This is Lehi and his family going to the wilderness before coming to their promised land. This is the saints crossing the plains. This is Joseph Smith having his sacred grove experience. This is missionaries going to the MTC. This is us weaning ourselves off the world, finding some kind of a wilderness in the borders of our old lifestyle, but a place to root out the wild beast in each of us and become born again. In verse 5, this place, Mormon, was a place of pure water, living water, we would say. And it was there in verse 6 that as many as believed him would come to hear his words. Verse 7, after many days there were a goodly number gathered together. How is this little group growing? Again, it seems that Alma stays there, hiding himself from a king that wants to take vengeance on his departed priest. So this would have been person to person. 
new convert reaching out to soon-to-be new convert. There seemed to be a hunger among these people to learn the things of God. They were not far removed from a time of faith during the days of Zenith. Remember King Noah had replaced the priests of his father with priests that were men after his own wicked heart? Well, where did they go? Were there still old-timers that remembered the days of Zenith when they went out in the strength of the Lord and trusted in that strength as they tried to defend themselves against the Lamanites? Even in this time of apostasy, there were sensitive souls that were reaching after righteousness. And though they weren't in Noah's court to hear Abinadi's final testimony, they must have heard some of his earlier cries for repentance and felt a desire to obey. They are the ones who gather to Alma at the waters of Mormon to hear him. And he did teach them and did preach unto them repentance and redemption and faith on the Lord. Do we start to see the third and fourth articles of faith roll out here? That it is through the atonement or redemption of Christ whereby we can be saved through obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel, the first of which are faith and repentance, followed by baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost. In verse 8, that's the order that Alma proceeds through. He says to them, Behold, here are the waters of Mormon, for thus were they called. And now he begins to describe the baptismal covenant, both their part and the Lord's promised part. Notice both sides. As ye are desirous to come into the fold of God, that's your desire, to leave the wicked world and come into God's fold, to recognize the voice of the good shepherd who has called these wandering sheep, and to be called his people. Remember King Benjamin? I want to give you a new name so that you can be God's people, children of Christ. But it's not just that vertical component to be in God's fold and to be his people, but there is a horizontal component. Loving God is the first, loving neighbor is the second. And so they promise to bear one another's burdens that they may be light. That's always the result when a collective group of people decides to lift where they stand, as Elder Uchtdorf has taught. It's not just doing things for other people, though. It's being certain things for other people. It's being there for them when they're most needed. Verse 9, they are willing to mourn with those that mourn, yea, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. That is not redundance. There's an order there. If you're mourning, can I mourn with you? If you're ready for comfort, can I offer it to you? This is Jesus with Mary and Martha knowing full well that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet he pauses and weeps with them. He mourns with those that mourn, knowing they're not yet ready to be prematurely comforted. I'm often horrible at this order. I want to skip over mourning and jump straight to, com to comfort. I'm an incurable optimist. I don't like to dwell on the negatives, whether they're mine or somebody else's. I just want to get past it. My wife and my daughters are gently trying to help me change in that regard. So often it's the sisters who seem so naturally inclined to honor both requirements of this, to be a listening ear and a shoulder to cry on for as long as needed before someone is ready to move on to a desire for comfort. If James says that we need to let patience have her perfect work, Perhaps we need to allow sorrow to suffer alongside her. I just want to jump straight to solution. Maybe that's the male in me. And often my wife and daughters will say, Dad, I don't want a solution. I don't need an answer right now. I just want to be heard. Just listen with me. Watch with me one hour, especially when there's nothing you can really do. Weep with me. Again, isn't that Gethsemane for Jesus? His chance to fully condescend so that he might fully know, according to the flesh, what we're enduring here? No wonder he weeps. He is mourning with those who mourn, always standing ready to comfort as soon as someone finds themselves ready for that next step. We further promise to stand as witnesses of God in all times and in all things and in all places that we may be in. Notice the all-encompassing nature of that witness. All times, all things, all places. Some, some places, sometimes, some things are far easier than others. 
But do we pick and choose? I'll stand as a witness of God here, but please don't make me do it here. I'll do it now, but please not in this other set of circumstances. Or I'll be a witness of God in this thing, but this other thing, I'd rather disguise my discipleship at least a little. I actually remember when I was at Divinity School being asked to give a lecture on the restored gospel to an undergraduate class in the history of Christianity. I was just thrilled that a secular university would give Mormonism a day in the history of Christianity. We're making progress. Well, I went and explained as much as I could within the hour allotted about the history of the church and some of its beliefs and practices and so forth. Now, I was the PhD student from the Divinity School. I was supposed to come with all of my academic trappings to give a scholarly, sanitized, objective explanation of historical Mormonism. And so, sure enough, I didn't come with my missionary tag on. I wasn't passing out copies of the Book of Mormon and looking for referrals. But at a certain moment near the end of class, the professor raised his hand in the back. He thanked me for explaining enough of Mormonism's history to try to make sense to the students. But then bringing the past into the present, he said, Now, I understand 19th century religious revivalism. I can see how the first vision and claims of angelic ministration and so on would perhaps resonate with a 19th century crowd, especially among the less educated. But you Mormons today, and then he, he, almost like he got uncomfortable to even pose the question. Almost squirming, he said, but, but Mormons today, I mean, they don't, they don't, it's almost like he couldn't bring himself to say the, the B word, believe. And it finally came out. I mean, Mormons today, though, they don't actually believe that that stuff happened, do they? Now, here I stood on the borderland between liberal Protestantism and evangelical Protestantism. Because within that denominational family tree, there are those that still stay very strong and firm to inerrant biblical belief, and others, the more liberal modernist side of Protestantism, that has backed away from anything that smacks too much of the supernatural, the miraculous, the divine. And even within the restored gospel, the more modern and the more progressive, the more liberal approach that we can take to it, the better we will fit in with more secularized peers. I knew that. But there I stood before his undergraduate class and this professor that seemed incredulous that any modern Mormon could believe such things. I simply smiled and said, oh yeah, oh yeah, we still believe. This is not some relic of a less enlightened past. Latter-day Saints still believe that these things really did happen. I do. It was an interesting time and thing and place to stand as a witness of God. But it was included under that title, All. And nervous as I was to make that stand, I'm grateful that I made it. I've been trying to make similar stands ever since. And it looks like that's just the beginning, because the verse continues, even until death. That's how long we're in this. If this is all our part, what part is the Lord's in this covenant? He continues in verse 9, that ye may be redeemed of God, numbered with those of the first resurrection, that we might have eternal life. Boy, does our part seem like some token offering compared to what the Lord is offering us, not in return, but in advance. This is the first ledger that King Benjamin spoke of, this gift of salvation that the Lord is offering to each of us. Verse 10, Alma continues, If this be the desire of your heart, if this is what you really want, what have you against being baptized in the name of the Lord? It's interesting that he would phrase it in that way. Well, what do you have against it? Recognizing there, are, there seem to be so many stumbling blocks, obstacles, roadblocks, from doing the things that we say we desire to do. Does it simply come at too much cost? Making me wonder, how much did we really desire it to begin with? What have we against taking the next step? Turning towards Zion and leaving Babylon in the rearview mirror? Finally deciding that I'm done with the land of Nephi and I want to return to the land of Zarahemla? What do you have against that? Let it go. 
Because by so doing, in this case, by being baptized in the name of the Lord, that will serve as a witness before God that ye have entered into a covenant with him. To do what? To serve him. To keep his commandments. Again, not to earn salvation, but to work towards reconciliation. And to what added gift, since the Lord doth immediately bless us, that he may pour out his Spirit more abundantly upon you. Anytime I feel the Holy Ghost, consider Ledger 2 paid in full. To feel God's love, to feel the sanctifying, forgiving influence of the Holy Spirit. That was so worth whatever acts of service or obedience I was able to offer God. And notice this doesn't seem to imply a first experience or exposure to the Spirit. They've already felt it. It's what brought them out to the waters of Mormon to begin with. This was simply so that they might have the Spirit more abundantly, in greater proportion than what they had before. It should come as no surprise to us that people of other faiths have felt the Holy Ghost. Early on in my mission, I wondered about that. Oh, no, 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 we have a corner on the market there. We don't. We have priesthood authority to give the gift of the Holy Ghost. So that after a covenant under authority is made with God, God may then pour out his spirit more abundantly. But that's a spirit that God in his mercy and generosity has placed within every one of his children. That light of Christ that resonates with the truths of God whenever they are taught. I am so grateful that however far from God we might be, we still have an opportunity to feel his spirit which always acts as an invitation to come and feel more of it. Again, some kind of resonant frequency that begins to vibrate within our soul, leading us to seek the source of that spirit and come unto it to receive it more abundantly. In fact, it reminds me of something Joseph Smith prayed for in the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple, DNC 109. He prays, among other things, that we may grow up in thee, to grow up in God. That suggests growth and progress. And then the next phrase, and receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost. Fullness? That suggests some kind of partialness leading up to it. Again, this idea of pouring it out more abundantly, growing up in God, receiving a fullness of the Holy Ghost. The Spirit is not a light switch. It is a dimmer switch. And it can grow within each of us from light of Christ, simple conscience, to the influence of the Holy Ghost, to the gift of the Holy Ghost, and hopefully eventually for each of us, a fullness of that Spirit. Now when the people had heard these words in verse 11, they clapped their hands for joy. I sometimes wish we did a little more of that at church. And they exclaimed, this is the desire of our hearts. Remember Alma's words in 10 were, if this is your desire. And they say, that's exactly what we've been wanting. It's so beautiful that the Lord offers us truly what we most deeply desire. Perhaps a little more hand clapping is therefore in order. In verse 12, he takes Helam, one of the first. We'll see him a little bit later, so keep an eye out for him. The two of them go forth into the water, and Alma cries, saying this. Now notice this seems to be the prayer before the prayer. O Lord, pour out thy spirit upon thy servant, that he may do this work with holiness of heart. For Alma to have been a priest, even of the wicked king Noah, he must have had priesthood authority, given him at some point. It wasn't priesthood authority he was lacking, but priesthood power had definitely been in short supply. Authority simply requires ordination, but power requires worthiness. And knowing how far he had wandered from that worthiness, Alma pleads with the Lord for forgiveness sufficient to be able to perform this work with holiness of heart. In some ways, any time any priesthood holder speaks for God before offering a prayer of blessing, perhaps a preliminary prayer would be necessary. And there's none better than this. Any time we are about to officiate in God's name, to do some introspection, to check the cleanness of our hands and the purity of our hearts and pray to God that we might do his work with holiness of heart. When he has said that, verse 13, the spirit of the Lord was upon him. 
an immediate answer to the prayer he'd just offered. And he said to Helam, now notice this Nephite baptismal prayer. Moroni later will give us the official one. Alma's is a little longer, but it's fascinating some of the things he says. Helam, we do the same, calling the person by their name. I baptize thee having authority from the Almighty God. Again, we say something similar, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ. It is personal, the person's name. It is under authority, authorized by God. But notice what Alma adds to the prayer then. As a testimony that ye have entered into a covenant to serve him until you are dead as to the mortal body. Now he'd already said that back in verse 9, right? Even until death. But what a beautiful thing that in the middle of this baptismal prayer, he's reminding Helam, this is how long this is supposed to last. You don't get up and dry off and forget about the commitment that you've made. This covenant is supposed to be a change of life. It reminds me of a story my wife told from her mission in France, where someone had joined the church. They'd just been baptized and they're being confirmed right there in front of this little congregation. The missionaries that were performing the ordinance lay their hands upon this sweet convert's head. And as part of the blessing, after conferring the gift of the Holy Ghost, they blessed this man that he would be able to be faithful, active, and attend church every week. Now, evidently, they must have not been quite as clear as they needed to be when they taught about the commitment he was making. Because in the middle of his own confirmation, hands on head and all, he turns around and looks up at the missionaries and asks incredulously, Every week? Yes, that is the commitment that we're making. I'm not saying perfect attendance. I'm simply saying a lifelong commitment to follow Christ. This is our version of what you hear in every worldly wedding. For richer and poorer and sickness and health, good times and bad, we're committed to each other. That's what a covenant is all about. It actually reminds me of the most embarrassing part of my own childhood baptism at age eight. I guess no one had warned me about the buoyancy of my feet, because when my father lowered me into the waters, my torso went down, but my feet went up. And when I came out of the water and looked beaming at my home teacher on the side, he looked down and shook his head. No, that one didn't count. So my dad started again, gave the prayer, put me under, and the same thing resulted. I decided to get a second opinion this time. So this time I looked on the other side at my primary teacher, but he, like his companion witness, also shook his head. That one didn't count either. I'm like, come on, dad, get it together. But third time was the charm. And he held me down and made sure that every body part was immersed and then brought me back up. Now at the time, I felt a little embarrassed by it. But since then, I've been grateful for personal experience knowing just how deep our immersion needs to be. And if we had to be baptized by immersion, should our discipleship be any less deep in the aftermath? In other words, is our activity by immersion? Is our testimony submerged? Or does it simply skip along the surface of our lives? No, baptisms in the restored church have to be all in. And the life of discipleship that follows should be all in as well. After all, isn't God all in in this commitment and covenant? As promised at the end of verse 13, May the Spirit of the Lord be poured out upon you, and may he grant unto you eternal life through the redemption of Christ, whom he has prepared from the foundation of the world. Now, more than that incredible promise of eternal life, Alma has just taught us a profound truth tucked away in that baptismal prayer. He's hoping that God pours out his spirit, right? But notice what he says about the eternal life. It would come through the redemption of Christ, whom he has prepared. Now, we've already seen in the Book of Mormon, we saw it in one of the epistles of Peter, that the atonement of Christ was prepared from before the foundation of the world. The atonement was prepared. But this verse gives one beautiful added wrinkle. It wasn't just that the atonement was prepared, as in planned for. It's that the atoner was prepared. And according to the pronouns in this verse, he was prepared by God himself. 
It's the Spirit of the Lord, the Lord God in this case, the Spirit of God that is poured out upon us through the redemption of Christ, whom He, the Father, has prepared from the foundation of the world. Who better to mold the Messiah? Who better to prepare the Prince of Peace than our loving Heavenly Father Himself? Section 138 of the Doctrine and Covenants says that each of us received our first lessons in the premortal world of spirits. Well, evidently, Jesus Christ received his first lessons there too, from no less a tutor than his eternal Father. Can we not trust the preparation of Jesus, knowing the preparer that was behind it all? Well, after he'd said these words, verse 14, both of them are buried in the water. And they arise and come forth filled with the Spirit and rejoicing together. In the early days of the church, rebaptism was a fairly common practice. After the saints crossed the plains and came to Utah, during the Mormon Reformation, rebaptism happened all the time. Often it was when people would head off on missions, they'd be rebaptized. It was just a, a fairly common occurrence to renew their commitment. I sometimes wish that we could do the same. That practice was ended during the ministry of Wilfred Woodruff. With the understanding that rebaptism was unnecessary when a renewal of covenant was already taking place each time that we partake of the sacrament. I'm grateful that as tiny as those little cups are, they give us a chance to re-immerse ourselves in memories of a font filled with pure water to represent the cleansing that comes through Christ. By the way, don't forget the verb that's used in verse 14, that they were buried in the water. Paul teaches this beautifully in Romans chapter 6, where he describes this symbolism of baptism as burial. Not just burial in water, but burial in Jesus, in the life of Christ. Romans 6 verse 4, Therefore we are buried with him, by baptism into death. Maybe there's extra meaning that Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb, that there was room for Joseph of Arimathea there. Well, baptism is a chance for us to be buried with Jesus as well. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So it's not just what we're leaving behind, the death of the old man or woman of sin, but what we're looking forward to, walking out of the baptismal font to begin a new life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, there's our baptismal burial, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, raised with Christ and not just buried with him, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. I think sometimes we do our eight-year-olds a disservice simply by using water as a symbol of the cleansing that is taking place. Washing away sin is a beautiful metaphor, but perhaps it would help our children to learn more about burial, about death, and about resurrection and newness of life. Because water and washing is so close a metaphor so visible to us that we might actually think that it's not a metaphor at all, but an actual reality, that it's the water that's washing away our sins. My dad was a chemistry major and ended up getting his master's degree in chemistry. Though I only watched him use his knowledge occasionally when he checked the pH balance in our swimming pool in Southern California growing up. He spent most of his professional career in business. And so I'd always kind of chuckle to myself when I saw him out there putting drops in and checking chlorine and pH balance, thinking, how's that master's working out for you, Dad? Well, as part of my calling in the bishopric, I go to every child's baptism service in our ward and conduct them. I love it, seeing these wonderful eight-year-olds, so clean already, but wanting to make a covenant with Christ to seek that level of cleanliness throughout their lives. I've often asked them in the baptismal service, do you know what we put in the water? I mean, when you want the dishwasher to wash away the grease and grime from the dirty dishes, you have to add some soap, right? If you want the washing machine to wash the stains out of your clothing, you better put in some detergent. So I'll ask these little eight-year-olds, 
But to get sin out of our souls? Wow. What do you think we must add to the water to make that happen? And their little wheels are turning and they think, I have no idea. What kind of chemicals must you put in the water to wash away sin? And once I've ratcheted up their anticipation enough, I'll say, you know what we put in the water to wash away sin? Nothing. Nothing. It's just regular old tap water. Sorry to disappoint you. Because guess what? It's not the water that washes away sin. It's Jesus who does. He who was prepared, whom the Father prepared, has condescended to come down and take our dirt upon him to trade his robes of righteousness for our filthy rags, to invite us to join him in the grave, buried with him, so that as he rises, he can lift us alongside him, ready to begin a newness of life. As Paul says in verse 8 of Romans 6, Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. That's our greatest hope. When we were buried, did we really let certain things die? Old habits just to fade away into oblivion? Or do we kind of want to have some things still poking up out of the ground? That's a pretty morbid thought. Perhaps it needs to be that. When something is dead and buried, there's supposed to be a certain sense of closure. I'm not going back to that. I remember once when I was an MTC teacher, I had a group of missionaries all preparing for a Spanish-speaking mission. But boy, did they have a hard time transitioning away from English. In the MTC, it's supposed to be S-Y-L, speak your language. H-A-S-A-E, habla su idioma, if you're speaking el idioma celestial. But this one particular set of elders and sisters just couldn't say goodbye to English. So I thought I'd help motivate them a little bit. At the end of one particular class, I asked them all to leave, to go into the hallway and to wait outside. And when I knocked on the door, they could come back in. As soon as they left, I pulled out my backpack and started pulling out props. I pulled out a flashlight and turned it on so I could turn off the lights and have a little bit dimmer um, kind of ambiance in the room. I pulled out a handheld tape recorder. This was the days before cell phones. And started playing some somber music. I pulled out a carnation and put it in my lapel, took some flower petals and sprinkled them across the table. And then the piece de resistance pulled out from my backpack a little homemade coffin that I'd made out of cardboard and a black hefty bag. And on some little stretched out cotton balls, I laid out the word English that I had printed off my printer at home. I went over to the door knocked on it, and then rushed back to the table and knelt down and pretended just to be weeping, mourning, crying over this tragic loss. The missionaries opened the door and poked their head in and wondered what on earth is going on. Our teacher has lost it. Music? The mood lights? He's bawling into some box? What the? Oh. And then they read what was written on the paper. They recognized the identity of the dearly departed. And then they joined me in tears, a little more real than mine were. We joked about this, but I let them know, Ingles está muerto. English is dead. It's gone. Y no hay resurrección. There's no resurrection here. We are speaking Spanish. It's what you need to know in your mission. There's no going back to the old Ingles. Occasionally, it looked like they were trying to exhume the body. But for the most part, they did much better from that moment forward, after our little funeral. Can we do the same? Can we let certain things die? Again, if we're trying to make it back to Zarahemla, if we've repented of our sins, stopped the downward slide, and are now trying to move forward in that atoning ascent, then a burial is in order. With your promised resurrection, a beautiful reflection of your desire never to resurrect your old life. That's really what we're asking for when we're being baptized. Now go back to Mosiah chapter 18. And that day in verse 16, 204 souls. I love this. It says they were in number about 204 souls. About? 
That sounds like a pretty specific number to me, a pretty exact number. And that's exactly what numbering means. Again, we'll see this in Moroni chapter 6. We saw it back in Mosiah chapter 6, after King Benjamin's address, where those who made the covenant were numbered and named so they could be remembered and nourished. Well, these 204 were filled with the grace of God. And from that time forward, they were called the Church of God or the Church of Christ. In verse 18, Alma makes sure that they could continue down that path. And so he ordains fellow priests, one for every 50 of their number, to preach, to teach, or as King Benjamin would have said, to stir them up in remembrance of the covenant that they've made. That's a pretty good teacher-student ratio, don't you think? One to 50? I remember my time in the South occasionally visiting mega churches, where a congregation had grown so large that they had to meet in some kind of an arena of sorts. I know of some congregations that meet in former NBA arenas, massive stadiums, complete with sermons broadcast on the loudspeakers and the preacher's face in living color on the jumbotron. Worshippers filling the stands, concessions all around. It's an interesting thing. And compared to that, a little Latter-day Saint chapel with its congregation of a few hundred seemed a little underwhelming. I started thinking, we could do mega chapels in the church, at least in Utah. Isn't that what the conference center is? I remember calling it the Meganacle to replace the tabernacle when it was first built. But we tend to use buildings of that size only for things like general conference. And we could build dozens of those, scores of them, all along the Wasatch for Latter-day Saints to fill every Sunday. Wouldn't that show something to the world? These mega-Mormon chapels? But there's something about teacher-student ratio. There's something about purposely keeping a congregation small, of even dividing it and cutting up friend groups, separating saints as soon as it gets so large that we can't fit into a small chapel with a little bit of cultural hall overflow. What's the real purpose in keeping our congregations fairly small? A lot of it has to do with teacher-student ratio, or better, student-student ratio, needing to keep congregations small enough that we actually know each other and can serve each other. We don't want people lost in a sea of strangers. In fact, I was invited once as the lone Latter-day Saint in a room full of evangelical Protestant ministers when a megachurch pastor came to talk to them. And the one thing he said that I remember best, as all these small-town pastors almost looked up to him in envy, I wish I was a megachurch pastor like you, he said to them, do you know what we megachurch pastors always talk about and ask ourselves? How do we make our huge congregation feel like a small parish church? How do we help our people feel at home here? How do we help them get to know each other and serve one another? How do we make a big arena feel like a small church? Well, some things you just need a small church to do. So 50 saints to one priest is not a bad ratio. In verse 19, they're told to teach nothing but the things which Alma had taught. Things which had been spoken by the mouths of the holy prophets. I guess correlation is older than we think. But doctrinal purity is important in every age. In verse 20, so is doctrinal simplicity. To preach nothing save it were repentance and faith on the Lord. That was the crux of the message that he'd written down while in hiding, right? That's what he'd been teaching as these hundreds began to assemble. Not the appendages, of which we have so many and so many beautiful ones, but rather the core. In 21, no contention, one eye, one faith, one baptism, hearts knit together in unity and in love. Now, I have no idea how to knit. I can't sew. I remember trying to fix a, a hole in my pants as a missionary with a stapler. It worked okay. But for those who know how to knit, I have a feeling there's a lesson there about how to become truly one knitting our hearts together in unity and in love one towards another. You see what a pendulum swing Alma is doing from his previous life, where it was priests and king so far above 
all the peons that were mere subjects, their seats high above the people that they were teaching, whereas here, no difference of elevation, simply a common level of consecration as they worked together in unity and love. That's how they were supposed to preach, verse 22, and thus they became the children of God. Sound a little like Mosiah chapter 5, the end of King Benjamin's address? Now you are the children of Christ, spiritually begotten of him, his sons and his daughters. Verse 23, he commands them to observe the Sabbath, to keep it holy. That's going to be important. There need to be fixed reminders. That was one of King Benjamin's concerns. You have obtained, how do we retain and maintain? The Sabbath day is one of the key methods of doing so. We keep it holy in order for it to keep us holy. I just hope that one day in seven is sufficient. Evidently it isn't. Because he says at the end of 23, every day they should give thanks to the Lord their God. There's an interesting balance here between making Sunday a a different kind of day. In verse 25, it says set apart. There was one day in every week that was set apart to gather. Sunday should feel a little different than other days. But there's a danger in swinging the pendulum so far that it's so cut and dried that we pack all of our spirituality into that one day in seven and don't let any of it bleed out throughout the rest of the week. I remember as a much younger father on a weekday driving my minivan full of kids in the back and listening to some church song. And one of my kids chimed up from the back seat saying, is it Sunday? And I thought to myself, What a shame if they think that church songs, that spiritual music, have to be confined to that 24-hour period. Again, I'm grateful for the difference, for its set-apart nature. I get to teach the gospel basically every day, but I'm still grateful for the difference I feel on a Sunday. At the same time, I'm grateful that I can take some of my Sunday feelings, my, my Sabbath experience, and sprinkle it out through the rest of the week in things like giving thanks to the Lord my God. Setting apart one day for God does not mean excluding God from the other six. By the way, I'm really grateful that in 25, it's kind of vague. One day every week. It didn't say it had to be Sunday. I don't know about you as a missionary, every time I taught a Seventh-day Adventist, I knew where the conversation was going to go. And it was proved to me from the Bible that Sunday has to be the day of worship. Seventh-day Adventists, obviously, worship on the seventh day. Saturday is their Sabbath, as it was for ancient Israel. And try as we might to talk about the day of the Lord or the resurrection on a Sunday, verses from the book of Acts. At the end of every one of those conversations, I felt like I'd been beating my head against the wall, unable to prove to them that the Sabbath had changed to Sunday. Looking back, I wish I would have simply quoted something like verse 25 of Mosiah 18 and said, as long as there's one day in every week that we offer God. That's what he's asking for. I don't have to be as adamant about Sunday as they were adamant about Saturday. Because guess what? The five months I spent as a student in Israel on study abroad in college, we kept the Sabbath day holy on Saturday too. And the week we went to Egypt, a Muslim country, we kept the Sabbath day holy on Friday, as Muslims do, depending on where we happen to be in the world. In fact, I was laughing to myself, if you started your weekend in Egypt and then went to Jerusalem and then ended up in Europe somewhere, you can have three Sabbaths in a row. What a week. What we do and don't do, how we act, is so much more important than the specific day that we do it on. But to allow a congregation to assemble on a given day, I'm not saying that we just, oh, pick your day any day. We come together as a congregation on a day that that congregation within that country has designated as the Sabbath. And sure enough, at the end of verse 25, it's not to set apart one at the exclusion of the others. They still got together as often as it was in their power to assemble themselves together. This sounds like a beautiful congregation. They just want to be together, not confining everything spiritually or socially to one day a week, but just wanting to be together. 
they are a tiny minority, right? They're hiding out from the searches of the king. They need each other. We all do. That being said, the priests weren't supposed to need their congregation economically. In verse 26, the priests were not to depend upon the people for their support. Instead, for their labor, they were to receive the grace of God, a far better wage in my opinion, that they might wax strong in the spirit, having the knowledge of God, that they might teach with power and authority from God. I'll admit, I love professional ministers. I was surrounded by them in training at Divinity School. And so to see my friends, I still follow them on Facebook and we'll see, I just got a new congregation. Or I was ordained to the ministry in such and such a faith. I cheer them on every chance that I get. I think it's beautiful. I've gone to hear friends preach in other congregations. And the vast majority of them are not in it for the money because they don't make much. Yes, there are some mega church pastors preaching their prosperity gospel that seem to be making a fortune off the word of God. But most ministers are motivated by love of God and love of neighbor, as we all should be. And they're just trying to make ends meet. They're trying to keep the lights on both at home and at church, worried about what will come back when the plate is sent around the congregation and not in a mercenary kind of way. All that being said, I am so grateful for the principle of a lay ministry in the restored church of Jesus Christ. There's something about the grace of God being our reward. There's something about waxing strong in spirit. I know that there are portions within the church that are professional, education being one of them. And yet that's not a paid clergy. Even church employees are led by a lay clergy who didn't study for the ministry as some kind of a professional goal, but rather take off whatever hat they happen to wear from Monday through Friday to be able to minister to all those around them with no kind of financial support. Are there some disadvantages to not having a professional clergy? Yeah, but the pros so far outweigh the cons. I would never want to have it any other way. We get to practice on each other and we're ennobled in the process. In verse 27, the people of the church impart of their substance, everyone according to that which he hath. If he has more abundantly, he gives more abundantly. If he has little, he gives little. If he has nothing, he's given to instead. And priests are no different here than anyone else. In 28, all impart of their substance of their own free will and good desires towards God, including to those priests that stand in need. If their number among those needy, naked souls that need to be cared for. Even when some people want to attack the church as if it had a professional clergy, because there is a living allowance for general authorities, many of whom do not take it, and some who need it because otherwise they would stand in need. Consider it more fast offerings than anything else. As priests, like any other needy, naked soul, can rely upon the generosity of their fellow saints to meet their needs. In verse 29, they impart both temporally and spiritually to one another according to their needs and their wants. All of this is done, verse 30, in Mormon. Again, if Mormon is abridging the plates, I think he got a smile on this verse. I think he kept more than the 100th part as he kept seeing his name. He must have liked this one. It was done in Mormon, by the waters of Mormon, in the forest that was near the waters of Mormon. Yea, the place of Mormon, the waters of Mormon, the forest of Mormon. Is that enough times to hear the name? But then this beautiful phrase. How beautiful are they to the eyes of them who there came to the knowledge of their Redeemer. Yea, and how blessed are they, for they shall sing to his praise forever. Where is your waters of Mormon? Are there places, cherished memories, where you have come to a knowledge of your Redeemer? Hold on to those places. Remember them. Revisit them often, even if only in memory. My five months in Israel convinced me that it is called the Holy Land for a reason. But my time there also made me realize that Puerto Rico, my old mission stomping grounds, will always be one of my holy lands as well. Israel, because of the things Jesus did there, 
Puerto Rico because of the things he let me do there. And hopefully our life is spent going from one waters of Mormon to the next and to the next, coming to know our Redeemer place after place after place. It all happened in the borders of the land, verse 31. As far out of enemy territory as they could get, but not yet completely out. That's the story that comes next. We'll see it picked up in chapter 23 and 24. Because chapter 18 ends with them leaving, fleeing deeper into the wilderness because they find out that the king is now after them. By the way, the chapter ends, there's 450 souls now. About that many. More than double what we saw at the beginning. There seem to be so many souls back in Nephi that will do anything they can to return to Zarahemla. How they get there is the story of everything else that follows in these chapters, 19 through 24.